Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. So today is the first episode in our new Asia-Pacific series. This is something we have planned for quite a while, as lots of you are interested in our episodes focused on property markets in the region. But in order to really delve into what's happening in this part of the world, we'll be anchoring the series from Beijing, where Nick Holt, our Asia-Pacific Head of Research, will once a month talk through the most topical property news with other guests from Knight Frank and industry speakers. So Nick is a Mandarin speaker, and he's been in Asia for 10 years, and he's lived in some pretty interesting places, from Vietnam to Singapore, as well as China currently. He was also previously chair of the British Chamber of Commerce, which has been recently transforming into an advocacy body, given that post-Brexit, there's quite a lot more to do here. There's no longer just a community organisation. So welcome, Nick, to the podcast. Just to start with, really, if you could just let our listeners know a bit about what the first episode focused on and who the key speakers were, that would be really good to start with. Yeah, and, and hi Anna, great to be here to participate in the first Asia-Pacific podcast. And we've had two really interesting guests on today's podcast speak about what's happening across the Asia-Pacific region. Now, it's always challenging because we're talking about such a vast vast region from New Zealand up to Japan all the way to India, where we've got two people who cover the whole territory and touch on some really interesting subjects. So firstly, we have Sigrid Gielsitter, who's the chief executive of the Asia Pacific Real Estate Association. They're essentially an advocacy body that really pushes for the adoption of REITs, which are real estate investment trusts in parts of Asia. And she touches on exactly that, REITs, what's going on, especially in China, India, Philippines, etc., Really interesting dialogue with her. And then we've also got uh, Kevin Koppel, who's the Managing Director of Knight Frank Asia Pacific. So again, he's been in the region many years, used to run our Australian business and moved up to Singapore in 2014. And again, some really interesting insights coming through the Knight Frank business from what our leasing teams, what our investment teams are saying. And I think, you know, one of the areas that I, I wanted to really delve down into in this podcast was where are we in terms of recovery? And where do we think the opportunities could be coming into 2021? So a lot of really interesting contents, really interesting perspectives, and I hope it's enjoyable and of interest to everyone. Sounds really interesting, Nick. Thank you so much. Well, we better get out of the way so our listeners can tune into your latest podcast. And we will see you back on the podcast in four weeks' time for your next episode. So today we're joined by Sigrid Gilsitter, the Chief Executive of the Asia-Pacific Real Estate Association, and Kevin Koppel, the Managing Director of Knight Frank Asia Pacific, to talk about what's going on in the Asia Pacific real estate markets. So perhaps if I can first turn to you, Sigrid, could you tell us a little bit about APRIA, the Asia Pacific Real Estate Association? What exactly does the organization do? What's its mission? And who are its stakeholders? Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me, and it's great to be here. Asia Pacific Real Estate Association, or APRIA, as we are known in the industry, is a pan-Asia trade organization for the real estate sector. We have a large investor base made up of pension, insurance, and sovereign wealth funds, investment and asset managers, uh, family office platforms, developers, as well as other real estate service providers. We're headquartered in Singapore and have presence in six major hubs, and they are in Australia, China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, and again here in Singapore. 
our mission as a company is to promote real estate as a preferred asset class. And the reason is that we'd like to induce more capital flows into our industry, encourage our policymakers to create policies that foster a better business environment for all of us, and ultimately support the growth of uh, the real estate industry in Asia Pacific. Thank you. And one of the areas that we see Apria being very much involved in is the promotion of the REITs, real estate investment trusts across the Asia Pacific region. And over the years, we've seen some of these REITs start to take hold, obviously, in some of the core markets, but increasingly some in some of the emerging Asian markets. Would you be able to give us a bit of an update on where the Asian REIT markets are and what have been the recent developments? Sure. Well, 2020, you know, as many of you know, it has shaped to be a major test to everyone, to all sectors, and including REITs in our region. But this year is actually shaping out to be another uh, landmark year for REITs. In April, China announced a pilot scheme to promote REITs in the infrastructure sector. This announcement is very important, not just as a milestone, but the government is using it as a mechanism to uh, boost the economy in the wake of the pandemic. We estimate that China's uh, REIT market could conservatively be worth initially to about uh, 600 to 800 billion US dollars in market cap. Some have even thrown around 3 trillion US dollars in terms of market cap at some point. And what this means is that this possibility or potential could make China to be the largest one in terms of the REIT market for Asia Pacific surpassing Japan and over the uh, one trillion US dollar market of the US, you know, the market cap of the US. Now, this excitement in, in the REIT space is not only happening in China, but we're also seeing it in Hong Kong. If you've been following the REIT developments there, the Securities and Futures Commission launched a consultation on their proposed amendments to the Hong Kong REIT code, and that happened last month. And most recently, is actually the Philippines. Last week, the Philippine Securities and Exchange Commission said that it has approved an initial public offering for Ayala Land, which is the subsidiary of Ayala Land, which is A-REIT. So this will be the first of its kind in the country. A-REIT is expected to hold the IPO, I think, at the end of the month, with the listing set on the first week of August. And we also heard that another REIT IPO is scheduled in India on the last week of July. So you can see, well, here, you know, in, in Asia Pacific, that there are a lot of exciting things happening in the REIT space. But what this really means is that, you know, the cloud of REITs is expected to strengthen across Asia. If we look at the REIT market in the whole of Asia Pacific, it has grown dramatically over the last 15 years. The market cap has increased over 400%, you know, and this I think about over the 15 years, like from 63 billion US dollars to 260 billion dollars today. And this rise in liquidity is by no means a coincidence. We're seeing a lot of institutional owners invest in REITs in Asia Pacific. Well, certainly a lot happening in the REIT space. And obviously, underlying all the REITs is the physical assets, the real estate. Perhaps just turning to Kevin, you sit across the whole of the Asia Pacific region. Where are we in terms of the real estate markets? Where are we in terms of recovery from COVID, second waves, activity in the various markets in the region? Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me on the podcast as well. 
I think it will take us probably another 12 months to work out exactly where we are in July 2020 in terms of the recovery from COVID-19. I'm not sure whether we are at the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end or somewhere in the middle, because actually it's a very dynamic situation and things change on a regular basis. It's certainly the case that most markets have exited lockdown or their first lockdown now, although we are seeing recurrence and spikes in cases in certain markets. Beijing a few weeks ago, Hong Kong is increasing now. Chennai went into a second lockdown. Melbourne has gone into a second lockdown. There are more localised lockdowns in other markets. So we are seeing things go in and out of restrictions as governments try and tackle the various challenges from COVID-19. And I think that's likely to be the pattern for some time. We're going to see markets, I think, go in and out of lockdowns depending on the caseload in their markets. And I think one of the things that both owners and occupiers will need to be thinking about is building in the maximum amount of flexibility in their working arrangements and their asset management plans to tackle and or to take account of these dynamic situations where we go in and out of lockdowns for periods of time. Thank you, Kevin. And listening to the state of the market in 2020, lots of uncertainty, a lot of economies having been shut down for a number of months. How is this all translating into sort of performance of listed REITs, Sigrid? How are REITs performing and what does that tell us about perhaps the occupational markets and some of the real estate assets across the region? REITs have not been spared from the market volatility uh, this year. So the performance, I think, through June, we've seen that also in sync with what the rest of the world is seeing in their stock market. But, okay, historically, REITs have turned in strong returns. And if we were to compare their performance relative to the broader markets, they have been outperforming them consistently over the last 10 years with relatively low volatility. And if we look at the spread to the 10-year bonds, REITs enjoy an attractive spread across uh, pretty much, uh, this is a story across the region. On a country basis, uh, returns for the larger REIT markets of Japan, Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong, they have been in the double digits over the last 10 years. The impact of COVID obviously has been very evident in many of the sectors, but what we've seen is that the real estate sector in Asia Pacific has always been resilient. And we do believe that returns have the potential to surprise on the upside in the future. And if we look at the underpinning you know, of uh, what is happening in the real estate sector, the growth drivers are actually still pretty much intact, whether looking at the demographics, urbanization, and also the trade or cooperation that has been characterizing uh, many markets in our region. Now, the three things I've mentioned are very critical because they ensure the growth uh, in this part of the world and that is likely to remain the fastest globally, at least in the next few years, and be supportive of the real estate sector. Now, on a property type basis, there is a bit of a disparity in performance. What we've seen over this year 
or over even like the last 12 months, we've seen industrial healthcare and the residential sectors outperforming all asset classes. But the traditional asset classes uh, like office properties, you know, they have been decent as well. So it's not like investments there are not something to look at. But if we were to correlate this to the performance of the real estate uh, sector in Asia, we've seen that the office sector has been among the top performers uh, across the world. So that's why the, the returns that we're seeing there are quite solid or decent. And Kevin, from a Knight Frank perspective, how are the various sectors performing? What are our leasing and our investment team saying in all the various markets in Asia Pacific? We are seeing a relatively consistent pattern in the way that markets appear to come out of their lockdown. So certainly resi and the small residential and the smaller end of commercial seems to be the most active area immediately out of those lockdowns. As Sigrid said, actually, we've seen considerable strength in industrial, in logistics, in data centres and healthcare. So they have been consistent over the whole COVID-19 experience. And I think healthcare looks particularly prospective as more and more investments are going to need to go into healthcare. And obviously, industrial and logistics are responding to the very significant growth we've seen in online retail over the last few months. At the other end of the scale, hotel and retail continue to be quite challenged. They've, in many respects, bore the biggest brunt of the lockdowns and the restrictions that have been introduced, obviously with no international travel happening because borders are closed, particularly across Asia. The hotel market has been particularly badly impacted. And the bricks and mortar retail has very much felt the impact of the switch to online retail. So they've certainly been challenged, but inevitably, I expect there will be a number of restructuring opportunities that develop in those sectors. So certainly one to keep an eye on. So there's been a lot said about changing corporate real estate strategies during this COVID period. Talk about more flexibility, obviously working from home, which was mandatory in some markets for a number of weeks. Kevin, what are your thoughts about changing corporate real estate strategies? This is certainly one of the most interesting areas to come out of the whole COVID-19 experience and one that our clients continue to ask us about on a regular basis. I think firstly, any resistance that may have existed previously to the idea of people working from home has probably largely evaporated through the COVID-19 experience because on the whole, companies did manage to make a transition to widespread working from home quite effectively and people found ways to be reasonably productive. I think that it's also magnified a few trends that were already underway. Firstly, I think as a result of the working from home experience, people will be much more discriminating in terms of the work they do from home and the work they do from the office. Home might be better suited to administrative tasks or things that you could do on your own. Equally, you might want to be in the office for tasks that you need to do where you need to work closely with teams to collaborate with other people. Because certainly the three C's that we see, collaboration, culture and creativity, much more difficult to do from home when you need to make an appointment to meet with somebody, whereas in the office you have the advantage of that much greater spontaneity. The second trend that I think is underway is that we have seen offices change significantly in the last 10 years in any event. We've moved away from small offices or cubicles to much more open plan space, to agile space, to 
different types of collaboration space. That trend has been underway for some time and we see it accelerating in the next few years as the office needs to become an even more attractive place to work in order to encourage people to make the trade-off of commuting and coming into the office rather than uh, continuing to work from home. We're likely to see companies move to a bit more of a core and flex real estate structure in order to make the commuting distances for their people less so that they can work in smaller flex spaces out in suburbs closer to home and perhaps only come into the core space in the centre of the city on a less frequent basis. It's also not the case that one size fits all. We have seen in markets where there is very few cases in the community and people feel much more comfortable commuting that actually most people are back in the office, whether that's in Perth or Auckland, very Western cities, or in many cities across China, Korea, Tokyo, etc. We are seeing in those cities where people feel much less concerned about the likelihood that commuting poses any risks, in those cities, people are much happy to come into the office and we're seeing much higher levels of people coming into the office than we're seeing in other markets. So, Kevin, from an investor perspective, investors who are looking across the Asia-Pacific region, how are all of these changes that are going on potentially in the economies, but also around workplace strategy, what could all of this mean for investors looking at this asset class? Thanks, Nick. Well, firstly, I think that office is going to continue to be one of the dominant asset classes in the Asia-Pacific region. It currently accounts, I think, for about 50% of investment activity in the region, and we see it continuing to be a very important sector, although clearly we're likely to see growth in areas such as industrial, in logistics, in data centres and healthcare, which are the hot sectors at the moment where there's plenty of activity going on. The overall, what, what is interesting is that certainly in office, in industrial, logistics, data centres, etc., pricing has actually remained relatively stable so far during the COVID-19 experience, and particularly in the beginning of the economic downturn, which we all feel is upon us. Prime office assets, industrial assets, logistics assets, the pricing has all held up reasonably well which is an encouraging sign, although we may see some pricing pressure in areas such as hotels and retails. It's clearly going to be challenging for occupational markets going forward. We are seeing signs of occupier stress. And as I've mentioned in my earlier answers, we are also in discussions with a number of occupiers who are asking us to help them rethink their real estate strategy and how much space that they're likely to need going forward. What that may lead to is an increase in space being made available through subleasing. And typically what happens in that type of market situation is that people in secondary office assets look at the opportunity to move up to the prime assets if the rents are competitive and move into those assets. And in many respects, a lot of the pressure and repricing is felt in the secondary market. So we'll be interested to see whether that trend continues in this particular environment at the moment. A second area is that there's likely to be significant investment in improving the environment in offices. Lots of discussions around technology relating to wellness, to access controls, contactless control of office spaces, etc. So we're likely to see more investment in the technology existing within buildings and more intensive asset management by landlords as they cater for changing customer tastes or changing tenant tastes 
in terms of the way that space is used. So certainly there'll be lots of interesting developments in office space in the coming uh, years. We focused very much on real estate markets within Asia and Asia Pacific. But one of the big trends we've seen over the last decade has been a lot of Asians, institutional and private capital flowing around the world into real estate. Perhaps I can turn to you now, Sigrid. What's the status in terms of this Asian outbound capital during this COVID period? Well, what we're hearing across the region is that uh, investors are trading cautiously. And this is very much in contrast to what we have seen in the past where Asians have been very aggressive in driving activity you know, over the last several years. But what is happening is that they are selectively pursuing opportunities at the asset level, even if there is ample liquidity in the market. Many are still waiting how this pandemic will affect the various asset classes, uh, the occupier's footprint, as what Kevin has alluded to a while ago. Many are just trying to see how that would play out. But what you've also seen, you know, is that they are also showing preference towards those that have been stellar performers, the core assets, uh, logistics, and uh, they are uh, closing transactions uh, that are involve these types of assets during this time. What we're seeing right now is a little bit of a pause uh, with many trying to see and assess how things would play out. And we do expect a rebound to happen you know, within the next 6 to 12 months. Another major area of discussion has been the future of some of the key financial centers across the Asian region. Certainly a lot of discussion around Hong Kong, with some uncertainty hitting the headlines over recent weeks. Perhaps, Sigrid, I can just put this to you. How do you think this will play out over the coming months and years in terms of Hong Kong and Singapore, their respective statuses as financial hubs and business hubs in the Asian region? So just uh, to put this into context you know, to our listeners, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong are the major financial hubs in Asia-Pacific. The office markets of both markets uh, have a lot of similarities. Uh, They're highly dense, there's a high penetration of international companies, and relatively low vacancy rates. However, what we're seeing is that there are diverging trends in the occupier markets, in the political climate, and from uh, an office supply standpoint, there's also a divergence. So these three things, I would say, will have some implications in terms of fundamentals over the longer term. Let me just touch upon the type of industry penetration in both markets. Um, In Singapore, what we have seen is that uh, the demand from the tech and tech-related companies has been quite strong. And if I add in you know, the co-working operators, the demand from them has outpaced that of finance companies in Singapore over you know, the recent years. Now, if we compare Hong Kong, what we've seen is that mainland companies have been a key driver for office activity and also the rising rents that we have uh, seen in Hong Kong. While there has been talks that some of the international companies are looking elsewhere because of some political changes arising from this national security law, this is something that we need to really look at. It's early days, uh, but we do think that if uh, in the event 
that there could be an eventual weakness, you know, coming from the MNCs or some of the Western banks. The mainland companies can easily uh, offset some of the weakness there. Now, it's also safe to say that Singapore is very well placed to capture an increasing uh, share of office demand over the long term. Why do I say that? If you look at the infrastructure, the political stability, the multicultural demographic, I mean, these are factors that are all very attractive for any international company, you know, and international financial companies. And looking at the rents uh, between Singapore and Hong Kong, there's still a quite a significant discount that Singapore offers relative to Hong Kong. But in terms of the future, you know, you can see this too will be having uh, divergent trends over the long term, as I've mentioned, just uh, on the three factors, the footprint of the occupiers, political climate, and the supply that we will be seeing over the next five years. So looking forward into 2021 and hopefully into a continued recovery phase across the region, Kevin, perhaps I can ask you, where should investors be looking? Where do you think the opportunities will be in terms of geographies, in terms of products? I think in this still very uncertain environment, Nick, that much of the institutional investor focus will be on the key gateway cities in Asia where there is both transparency in the way that the markets operate and also a fair amount of liquidity or transactional debt. So we expect to see Singapore, Tokyo, Sydney, Seoul continue to be relatively active markets. Hong Kong as well could continue to be quite active. Obviously, there's also a number of political issues that have been impacting the Hong Kong market. So it'll be interesting to see how they play themselves out. But we expect that the key gateway cities will be the markets that most of the institutional investors will be focusing on. In terms of sectors, much of what we've already said, so industrial, logistics, data centres, healthcare, senior living, those sorts of things are likely to be sectors that investors will be looking at very closely. And there's likely to be a number of opportunities developing in those markets. Equally, though, there's going to need to be some restructuring in areas like hotels, hospitality and retail. So that might also create opportunities in the market. We do expect there to be some occupier stress in the office market. That may well manifest itself in an amount of the subleasing space hitting the prime markets, which will then attract occupiers of secondary assets into the prime markets and potentially create more stress in the secondary markets. So a third area to focus on will be what's happening in the office space, both in terms of prime and also secondary office markets. Thank you. And finally, perhaps a question for you both. Asia-Pacific in many ways is ahead of Europe, Africa and the Americas in terms of its recovery from COVID. Are there any specific lessons that have been learned or are being learned currently that you think would be interesting to share to perhaps listeners or investors outside of the Asia-Pacific region? So perhaps first to you, Sigrid. Well, you know, risks, I would say, still remain elevated in our region just because we are still seeing uh, a resurgence in cases in some places that have been opened, like Hong Kong, or even in some cities in China, but they're under control. But uh, what it, that emphasizes to us is that we need to continue to work together to ensure that we are able to resume activities with utmost care for everyone's safety and well-being. 
But at the same time, it is important to have policies that are not just meant to preserve or save jobs in the interim, but also support creating jobs in the future. Long term, I've mentioned this a while ago, that growth in the region is expected to outpace the rest of the world over the coming decade. Asia is home to a large share of the world's growing middle class, and there are so many significant infrastructure improvements that are underway that should support urbanization as well as overall economic growth. So our policymakers across Asia-Pacific should continue to make an effort to foster a better business environment for all of us in this industry that would allow the real estate industry to grow. And Kevin, any thoughts from your side? Firstly, I'd like to echo many of the sentiments that Sigrid mentioned. I remain hugely optimistic about the outlook, both for markets in Asia in general and particularly for real estate markets. Many of the mega trends that we're seeing shaping our world in the beginning of the 21st century, urbanisation, young demographics, investments in technology, they're happening even faster in Asia than other parts of the world. So I think the outlook overall remains very positive despite the troubled times that we live in. I think the lesson that we are learning is it's really important to be flexible, to guard against complacency. This is not going to be a linear progression out of the COVID-19 outbreak. We're going to see a few steps forward and a few steps back. So it's really important, I think, that businesses in general remain flexible in the way that they respond to the very fast-paced changes that are happening as a result of COVID-19. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Music